no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Hello, and welcome to Media and the End of the World. This is Ralph Bellavo. Adam Kroon is uh, once again in absentia. Uh, he's becoming a fictional character. Because he is a this real is, person, right? He is a real person, okay. and he's been on the show, but uh, we keep on doing these at times when he's off having to do his uh, IT superhero out in the world stuff. So, But uh, Adam will be back shortly, and we will be back to our uh, regular routine here on Media and the End of the World. Thank you for listening. Uh, today we have a very special guest once again, um, someone who was brought in by one of my colleagues here at the University of Oklahoma, Alani Stain who is doing a course in women in media. Mm -hmm. And can you do your intro of the class? Yes, I can. The class is called Being a Woman in the 21st Century. And we are trying to bring in women from all sorts of disciplines and um, areas of expertise to talk to the students about what it means and what it looks like to be a woman in the 20th, 20, well, 21st century. Um, and we have also focused on not only what they themselves do, but also the lives of the women they work with um, in some mm -hmm. of the other cases. So, so is there, a, I'm just out of, because I've never asked you this before, is there a difference between uh, the 20th century and the 21st century, do you think? Are you are you optimistic? Is that a terrible question? I don't know. It's a terrible <laughs> question to ask. Um, um, we have sort of seen with the first two guests we've had and the work they do and the women they work with that it's sort of a, a despondent kind of situation that mm -hmm. for many women, life has not really changed much, yeah. um, especially if you're a woman in a developing country. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of uh, challenges and struggles still ahead and a lot of disparity in society. Um but women are still there, and they will continue to be there. So, yeah. Yeah, well, and because we haven't reached the end of the world yet, I remain optimistic that this will all get better. That there, that there are, there is light at the end of the tunnel, and that uh, you know the, the 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 movements that have started some things that I think are really important to address in our media culture mm -hmm. are still vital and alive. So, and the fact that we have women who highlight these um, ways of life and who highlight these different structures and um, ways of thinking about women um, make a difference because more people know about the disparities and the realities that women live with. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Let's be optimistic. We will be. We will remain optimistic until there's no evidence because we have to. What other choice do we have? I'm just, I, I just am too. I like to think that I don't like to be grim. I did that when I was 15. You know, I'm done with, with that level of grimness. Yeah, anyway. 15 is done. <laughs> 15 is done. And I would never go back to it for a second. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, we have a very special guest with us uh, on the show today. Uh, Mary Jo Heath is here, and she is the voice of the Met. Is that on your license plate? 
No, and it never will be. Okay. There are a million singers there, and I'm the one who talks, and I'm called the voice of the Met. Uh-huh. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Mary Jo is visiting to uh, guest lecture in this class, and she has been kind enough to give us a little bit of her time here uh, to do the podcast and talk a little bit about her life and her work and uh, all that sort of stuff. And uh, I think one of the interesting things we can point out, since we are here at the University of Oklahoma, is that you're from here. I grew up in Norman. You grew up in Norman. I did. You went to Norman High. McKinley School and Norman High. Ah, yes. There you go. Yeah. And uh, what is it like to come back? Well, honestly, um, my mother, who just passed away three years ago, lived here until like four years ago when she moved in with my brother's family in Iowa. So I have been back here every single year since I moved away, uh. like 40 years ago, um, <laughs> and uh, to visit her. And at the moment that I thought my life coming to Norman was kind of finished, our daughter, who was born in Amsterdam and raised in Connecticut, decided she was going to come to college at OU. So I've continued wow. to come here, and she's a senior now. So uh-huh. so I've happily continued to come back every year. Well, that's it's kind of a escape. little quiet comfort zone <laughs> to escape New York for a while and come to Norman and plop for a week. Yeah. It's very fun, actually. It's funny. That's kind of what Iowa is to me, because both of my kids were born in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And I was born in Iowa, yeah. actually, oh, when my were. dad was a graduate student. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do, uh, yeah. University of Iowa? Yep. Yep. That's where there our kids you go. were born. How yeah. do you know? So yeah, that, that the whole world. In fact, my younger daughter is there at Grinnell, right? Oh, shy. I'm, I'm I'm making everybody know about her. She's going to be so mad at me. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, so the Iowa connection is very strong. My sister-in-law is like the director of institutional development at Grinnell. Oh, really? Yeah, they live in Des Moines. Ah, So, yeah, the world gets smaller every day. There's the plug for Grinnell, I guess. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's a great place. It is really. We went there. We took her to visit there. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I are both uh, higher ed teachers. And we were just like, (laughs) we want to teach here. (laughs) My brother teaches at Drake Ah, in Des Moines. So there you go. Yeah. Another Normanite. Yes. So you are, so you have had a, kind of an amazing career in now so which what's technically your uh is do do you use the term legit music or classical music or what's the term that you usually use to describe what where you've spent your your life uh i guess classical music Uh because that's what it's always been my whole education and my career has always been in classical music mm-hmm. in a million different segments of it doing different things but always in classical music is that a it, it's a it's a very strange term I thought when I because we talked a little bit before we started uh, started the podcast and I listened to a lot of uh, contemporary stuff mm-hmm. 20th century stuff and calling that classical even though that's kind of categorically where it fits always felt like a strange thing like I think maybe to those of us who are in it it does but I think like the people that don't listen to quote-unquote classical music it it just helps them separate what is kind of serious concert music from everything else. Mm-hmm. So it kind of works. Still. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, those of us who listen to it, you know, 21st century opera isn't the same as Verdi and Puccini. Right, so yeah. we, when we're talking about it, we do make that distinction, but, you yeah. know, it's... I also, yeah. I think probably because when I was younger, I had uh, uh, a little bit of a more twisted sense of humor. So I listened to a lot of, like, the Eric Satie pieces that have typewriters in them. Uh-huh. And those the, the yeah. kind of music that still, it's like in the tradition, but it's a little weird, mm-hmm. you know. It kind of does some things that are pushing at the edges. Yeah, a little edgy that yeah, way, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind yeah. of breaking the rules of... 
what in, in, in documentary what's called the discourse of sobriety, right? There, there's supposed to be something oh, that's very a good, serious. I like yeah, that phrase. We should great, start using that yeah, phrase, actually. Bill, Bill Nichols was the guy who came up with that as a way of describing, you know, that sort of tone you get when you're watching documentaries of this is going to be serious, yeah, right? right? Yeah, right. So, right. so that's a very good thing. So, uh, so how did you get? Uh, now you did you did your um, PhD in music theory. Music theory. Yeah. Yeah. And that was yeah. at Eastman at the Eastman School of Music uh-huh. in Rochester, New York. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. so, what can I ask? What your focus was when you were doing that? Uh, well, I you know it's probably prophetic. My, both my master's thesis that I did here and my uh, dissertation were both on opera. Uh huh. Because I by that time I just loved it and I kind of wanted to know you know a lot of things. What, why did it make it feel the way it does? And particularly my uh, dissertation was a comparison of the Bluebeard operas, Duke Bluebeard's Castle by Béla Bartók, uh-huh. and a French version by Paul Ducat, the guy who wrote The Sorcerer's Apprentice, a very uh-huh. popular classical piece, called Ariane et Barbe Bleu. So I, and they were written within a handful of years of each other mm-hmm. in the early 20th century, and they were both under the influence of the symbolist poets and writers of the time. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of things that they have in common, and it turns out a lot of things they didn't. But there was, there was enough in common that made it fascinating. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, that sounds, well, how is it? That, how did you get started? Because did you grow up listening to the repertoire, or was that something that you picked up as you, you went know, along? You know, I, I, I always loved music. Uh, started piano when I was in second grade, and, and growing up, I played several instruments, and I was in band and chorus and orchestra in high school. And I always knew I wanted to be a music major from the time I was like 10 years old. But I didn't know what. And like every little good girl growing up when I did, I got a degree in music education. <laughs> I taught elementary school music for one year, and I went, oh, that's not it. Uh-huh. So I came back to graduate school at OU and started studying music theory. Uh, I was going to be a choral conductor. So by that time, Thomas Carey and Carol Bryce, the beloved voice teachers of Days Gone By here, had started their Cimarron Circuit Opera Company. And I was its first music director because I could play and coach people and teach them their notes and kind of conduct them. And and while I was doing my master's degree in music theory here, um, and then one thing led to another, and my other major professor, uh, Gail Diestwalinski, who was the big music theory professor here, said, I, I think your future's in music theory. And so I ended up going to Eastman to get a PhD in music theory with the idea that I would be a professor of music theory. So you never got out of music education that far? because No, you were... <laughs> no, no. I, mean, I have to say, I loved teaching freshman music theory and software uh-huh. music theory and orchestration and comp- beginning composition and counterpoint. I love doing that stuff. So what was it that, that turned you off to music education when you did it? You know what it was? Time? It was when I finished my PhD, I, I looked around. I got offered two jobs. And I said, this isn't me either. <laughs> uh, I realized I was going to be spending my life in a, if not Norman, Oklahoma, a town like Norman, Oklahoma, a medium-sized town in the Midwest of America somewhere. And you know how it is when you get a job at an academic institution as a professor. Usually that's it. You, If you move once in your career, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And I just decided at that point to me it sounded like a whole lot more fun to move to New York and get into the music business because I'd already started working in radio a little bit. I had done a uh, an assistantship. Eastman has a great recording studio, and I had worked with a, a producer they brought in, and I was doing recording sessions, and I was editing his records for him back in the very beginning days of digital 
editing where uh-huh. you were where you were swapping <clears throat> tapes off of decks <laughs> yes. to roll things together and then patch up the edits and make them tighter <laughs> do you do I know I it's just funny because when when CDs rolled out when digital recording mm-hmm. and then CDs rolled out uh, I was actually working at record stores in Chicago uh-huh. and our frequent it was it was a used a new record store and so our frequent classical music customers were these like fanatical collectors and they hated God digital love them. they hated, <laughs> they say. thought that digital was going to be the death of oh, music yeah. oh, they, they did. hated it they, did. they would like come in and i don't want this is digital blah mm-hmm. anything analog you know and they would like dig through and look at the ddd or aad and then be all skeptical and and they're complaining you're probably the only person in the world that still quotes that little <laughs> addd thing that's on records well, because i think because i remember when 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 digital came out i mean there was an amazing transformation in how things sounded. I mean, it was just astounding what you could hear all of a sudden. And the, the noise floor dropped and, you know, the popping and skipping and weird things that happened with vinyl. I'm betraying now these guys that were very loyal customers because <laughs> mm-hmm. they were just vinyl fanatics yeah. and they loved the warmth of it and all this stuff. And it was like... But mm-hmm. it, when it exploded, it was the classical that kind of led the way. Mm-hmm. They, the classical really were the early adopters of all this stuff because record companies had, by this time, great volumes of back catalog that we can now bring out again mm-hmm. anew on CDs. Right, yes. So that was when the record, the classical record business was booming mm-hmm. in those days when CDs first came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it was, and they did, I mean, they did remarkable stuff. There were these amazing, I was just thinking not too long ago that I, I've, this, I have bits of this Herbert von Karajan career package, and it's like 250 oh, yeah. CDs. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of the stuff is massive, right? Because right. it's because of all the material they've been able to pull together over these people's careers. Well, we did a, when I was at Phillips Classics, we did a, uh, a complete Mozart edition, and it was about 250 CDs, uh-huh. and people just bought it like crazy. That was mm-hmm. the best year our company had in its history, because <laughs> it caught on in a way that was shocking. Because yeah. people, and we let people buy it in installments, and it was released in installments, it was like book clubs of old, you know, you sign up for the book of the month club. But it was wildly popular because people loved the idea of having the complete Mozart yeah. in their homes. What was the, I can't, and this may have to be cut out because you may not remember either, but there was a company that did a subscription and they did really kind of off recordings and then you would subscribe to them and they the, would. Was it the Heritage Record yes, Company? Yes, yes, yes. They're all black and white. Yeah. And they, they, would, they would license stuff from all the other companies and then like back catalog stuff that uh-huh. had been sitting there for a yeah. while. Like we did two complete sets of Beethoven sonatas with Alfred Brendel. Mm-hmm. So they licensed the old one and then they released it in their black and white. Jackets. <laughs> it was just, and oh, it was yes, it was. Uh, you just signed up, and yeah. it came in the mail every month, and you paid the fee. Right. Yeah. And they would be, and, and the two things about them. One is, is they their repertoire was also very interesting because they would pick some very unusual yeah, stuff throughout there. And the second thing is that, like, you go to, to like uh, estate sales, which is the fancy way of saying garage yeah. sales now, and you find these <laughs> things. And you're like, oh, this is so cool. You know, <laughs> right. this is like you can't find this anywhere else. So. There's a reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a reason. I, yeah. I have a feeling that because I have a bad hoarding problem. I have a feeling a lot of the... As opposed to a good hoarding problem. Well, a good hoarding problem problem would be like gold, right? Or something that actually had some value. Nuclear weapons. You know, something that has some value. Not... You know, not bizarre CDs and <laughs> like classical music and right. things like that. So now you had mentioned also that so you were working for Philips. Yeah, when I decided to 
turn the page and get out of academia and not be a college professor. Um, I have a very nice husband. He's moved four times all over the world for me. So from Norma to Rochester to Rochester, now to the New York City area. Uh Um, And I moved there. And for the first two years, I have to say it was kind of PhD detox (laughs) because I was freelancing. You're both laughing. Um, So I I got I got a job set. I I started working on radio as a part-time person when I was in Rochester, when I was in graduate school. Uh, so I moved to New York, and I got part-time fill-in jobs at two different classical radio stations in New York City, because at that moment, New York City had three classical music stations. And somehow, the public station didn't see the commercial station as being competition to them, so they were, they were both happy to let me work both places, go figure. Uh, I was working for this independent producer, uh, doing his editing for him, and that's when I was swapping out the tapes, doing the digital stuff. And in the other time, I signed up as a temp and went to a law firm Mm. and filled in my time with that. I did that for two years. I was having a ball. (laughs) All sorts of different things. When you just walk, when you walk out of a building and your work is done and you don't have to take it home with you anymore. Oh, there's a job like that. (laughs) Imagine what that's like. It was actually really fun. That never landed in academia. Uh, No, No. never, never. You just carry everything around all the time. I know. I remember my father. So, you know. So, and then after a couple of years of doing that, then I, I got a job with a Philips Classics record label. And I have to tell you, I paused because it's like, oh, I really like my life and I'm making enough money. This is fine. Oh, we'll just take this job with this record company because if it doesn't work out, you can just go back to exactly what you were doing. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Um, and I, I started working in New York at Philips Classics doing the marketing and product management and promotion on the team of there were three people for Philips in the, in the U.S. We were part of Polygram Records. So Deutsche Grammophon was down the hall that way and DECA was down the hall that way um, because there were 27 labels in Polygram and three of them, the three you know, biggest classical labels were among them. And then after two years in New York, they had a job open at the Philips Classics headquarters in Amsterdam. And I, I oh, that's so sad. I came <laughs> home one day and I said to my husband, "Guess what?" I said, "Well, I said, I said, um, you know, Phillips Classics has a job open at the headquarters in Amsterdam. Do you think?" Yes. I mean, I didn't even get the question <laughs> oh, out. Well, so, that is something. So yeah. So I mean, he's a high school history teacher. He has a very uh, mobile job. It was kind of on purpose. He figured we were going to have to land where I landed, being in music, and it just kind of worked out really well. Uh-huh. So off we went to Amsterdam, where we lived for eight years, and I and it was great. Amsterdam is. Uh, as a as a city of art, I mean, in addition to everything else it's known for, but as a city of art, it has. I've had a couple of really amazing experiences there. Just standing in front of the Night Watch painting mm-hmm. and just yeah. getting totally lost. Yeah, and then the, the good exper- for you. Yeah, it was it was it's great. But then the other one, you'll like this because there there was a my uh, I was on a vacation with a relative. I won't say who, and I tried to talk <laughs> them into doing something. They were like, "No, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I want to do something else." It was actually going to see Gustavo Dudamel conduct a lunchtime free concert back, in public. Be- back before he was back before capital he, letters yes. Gustavo Dudamel. Yeah, <laughs> it was well. Yeah. It was right as he was ascendant. Uh-huh. Right. I noticed you made the Oscars this year. He did. Yeah. Oh, he did. He just made his Metropolitan Opera debut. He just conducted Verdi's Otello at the Met oh, a few months ago. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Is he, yeah. So he's 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 still ascending as these things go. I then. don't think so. He's been music director of the Los Angeles Philharmonic now for 10 uh, years, and okay. he's a god in Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's a pretty big star. Yeah, he's a, yeah. And he's always done a lot of opera. He 
so and it showed. I mean, he mm-hmm. really knows what he's doing. Opera. Yeah. He wasn't a newbie to opera at all. Okay. Yeah. So, so you're in Amsterdam, and what uh-huh. are you what are you doing there? Uh, s- sort of similar things. Working for Philips Classics, and now I'm the international product manager for all the new recordings. Which meant once the recording session was over, it was my job to turn it into a product. That you could mm-hmm. sell. In other words, that CD that you held in your hand back in the day when yeah. we did that. So, you know, I worked with the art director on what we wanted with the cover and uh, the notes for inside and what kind of packaging, what kind of marketing plans and working with the promotion department on that. I did that for uh, five or six years. And then they had a company had a restructuring and a downsizing and they decided we needed a business development department. So they turned that over to me to figure out what that meant and and get that going. And basically that means all the back catalog we have, figuring out different places and ways that we can uh, sell that. Mm-hmm. So, when, when, uh, just out of curiosity, when you were um, when you're doing this work in Amsterdam, how much of the company's sales were European versus American? Was it do you, do you have any idea? Was it was it more um, po- more focused on a, a, and directed toward a European market, or was it just well? What's global? interesting is what's interesting is that the marketing plans and ideas for any classical recording are totally different country to country. Uh-huh. Because it's a different language, it's different things that are popular, it's different artists. Um, classical artists in general aren't equally popular in every single country they go to. There's like two or three countries where they really sell well and they're really popular and their con- and their and their uh, concerts sell out. And then there's a handful where mm, mm. Um, uh, so you learn to focus your efforts on so every marketing plan is different. You know, Germany is different than France, than England, than Japan, than Italy, than the U.S. And once you cross a border into a new country, artists kind of learn very quickly that you start over. Huh. Just because you're popular in one, it doesn't mean you swan in like, okay, here I am. They're like, Yahoo! <laughs> um, uh, again and again, they, they learn that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. What is it then that um, is the universal element across countries? Um that makes music popular or that unites people when it comes to music? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I just think it just has the ability to touch your soul and the music that touches your soul is different from person to person. Because you're talking about how much Philip Glass just possesses you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel the same about some of his pieces. But with me, it's uh, the music of Richard Strauss just that's my favorite one and Mm -hmm. it just gets me and there's nothing like being in a a concert hall or an opera house with a group of people listening to a live performance of something and you're all feeling the same way you know you start to breathe together and listen together and at the end of the night you erupt in applause together and there's something very human and communal Mm -hmm. about that so uh, maybe that's part of an answer to your question, Alani. <laughs> There's also, I, yeah. you know, I think it's kind of interesting that, you, you know, as much as, you, and, you know, you're in the business of, to some extent, translating this into words about music, mm-hmm. but it isn't. It never is. It never, no, never it's is. always similes and metaphors. You can never. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to listen to it right, after we right, talked right. about it, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 It's, and so it's the, those moments. We're just where, the setup. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the you've got to hear this moment, yes. right? Yes. It's like when you're, when you hear something that just kind of, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of like certain kinds of brass arrangements where there's so much power and you're just kind of frozen by the whole mm-hmm. thing. And it's just like, I can't tell you, you have to hear this. <laughs> you know? Right. There was just a piece because they've been doing the series 
on public radio called American Anthem. I don't know if you've heard any of it. But I have some yeah. of them, yeah. And they did one on um, on uh, the Barbara Adagio, mm-hmm. Adagio for Strings. And again, it was just sort of like they're talking about it. They play a little bit of it and they play like a few seconds of it. And I'm like, oh, you know, just have that feeling because of the, 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 the completely inexpressible in words feeling of what goes on there in There is a, uh, actually a fairly recent uh, podcast called Aria Code that the Metropolitan Opera co-produced with WQXR and they just finished their first season of it where they have an artist come in and talk about an aria totally, totally in depth. The girl interviews them, and they kind of go bar by bar and section by section about what it all means. It, I mean, everything musically, dramatically, what the character's feeling. And then they also have one other expert, totally some non-music person, talk about it uh-huh. as as coming from the outside. Like they did uh, one on the aria Sempre Libera, which means always free, that's sung by the courtesan Violetta in Verdi's opera La Traviata. And she's a courtesan, and she, this is the moment of, have I found true love? Should I just throw off this life as a courtesan? No, I want to be always free, Sempre Libera. <laughs> and the outside expert they had come in and talk about it was a woman who was a former sex worker, now a psychologist. <laughs> wow. so, and then they, yeah. they put this whole thing together, and so uh-huh. you hear little snippets as both these people are commenting through it, because it's highly edited, of course. And then at the end, they play the whole aria all uh-huh. the way through. Huh. And it has been, they've done like 10 of them. Um, and and that, what was the title of it again? Aria Code. Aria Wherever Code. podcasts are found, yes. you can go to Aria Code <laughs> and get them. Um, and it's fascinating and wonderful and, and very popular. And they're now going to do season two, uh, too. Because yeah. it's really, really nitty gritty stuff. So, so. You, you you said outside experts, and and you had uh, you were telling me a little bit about an experience you had of that conjoined the world of opera and sports. Yes, can you tell that story? Um, <laughs> yes, I'd love to because I I think it's sort of germane in the world today. Uh, one of the things when I came to the Met, uh, and I spent nine years as the senior radio producer before I became the host. And when I came on board in, in 2006, it was the year that our the new general manager, Peter Gelb, took over after, you know, replacing the general manager who had been there for 15, 20. He'd actually spent 40 years there. He started as a carpenter and worked his way up to general manager. Well, Peter knew it was, it was uh, he wanted to change some things media-wise. He came from Sony Classical. He was a record company guy. And uh, he wanted to start our own station on... Sirius XM. So we have Met Opera Radio and Sirius XM, 24-7 opera. A lot of live, some archival things. Um, He wanted us to update our Saturday broadcast because they'd always been one person in a booth introducing the opera, and the intermissions were one long feature. And he said to me when I started my job, or when he was interviewing me, actually, do you like sports? Now, I said to him, I'm from Oklahoma. (laughs) And since he's a New Yorker, that meant absolutely nothing oh. to him. So I had to sort of explain, oh yeah, yeah I kind of grew up watching football and I love baseball and I'm a golfer and I watch a lot of sports on TV and I love sports. He goes, well, what do you think about the host and commentator format? And I said, I think it'd be great. So that's what we did. I mean, he just charged me with updating these broadcasts. He wanted to shoot it backstage to the dressing rooms and do interviews with the artists during intermission. He wanted to liven up the quiz and make it a lot funnier and a lot livelier and, and you know, do all sorts of things so that we captured the buzz of excitement like we really were listening to a live performance. Because mm-hmm. he said to me, I have the feeling 
these broadcasts, we might as well be playing a CD. He was, he, it was just, you know, it had been 50 years since anybody had changed anything about him. It was time, mm-hmm. overtime, for a loving brush-up of these broadcasts. So one of the things I did was, since I live in Connecticut, which is outside of New York, and I know the guy that's the president of ESPN Radio, we called him up and we said, can we bring our team up to ESPN to watch you guys for a day? Because I think there's a lot in common between what you do broadcasting live sports and us broadcasting live opera. He's like, really? And I said, yes, Trog. Trust me, his name is Trog Keller. Um, So we all went up there for a day, uh, like five of us. And we watched, we stood over on the side as they did the, it was the Mike and Mike show, Greenberg and Golick in the morning. And then we went over to the radio and and listened to their talk shows for a while. And we talked to all the producers and and they kept saying, why are you here? (laughs) And we said, because one thing, because this is really fun to be on the ESPN campus. And two, because there's a lot in common of what we do. And we kind of get, we wanted to get behind the scenes and watch them work and see if there were anything we could steal or ideas that we could, we had in common that we could work on. Um, and there were, actually. Uh, the biggest takeaway of all, there were several things that we took, but the biggest one of all was we asked them who they're talking to. When they're, when they're on the air and they're talking, who do they think they're talking to? On a scale of zero to ten. Zero being the person that slipped the channel and has just stopped there for some random uh-huh. reason. And ten being the guy who knows... <laughs> You know, every statistic about the Chicago Cubs all the way back to 1908 and every batter and every this and I mean, every single thing. seriously in need of counseling. Yeah, well, yes. And and probably seriously never changes the channel away from ESPN all day long. So and, and they said they're going for about, they think, about a six and a half. Hmm. They don't want to leave newbies behind so much, but they want to talk with some kind of intelligence and expertise about what they're talking to. Um, and they want to throw something in for the experts as well. And so all the way driving back, this was our discussion. Who are we pitching to? Mm. Who should we be pitching to? Who should we be talking to? How should we be talking? And um, we were already kind of like just instinctively doing a lot of that in trying to make our tone very conversational and very friendly and warm and welcoming and enthusiastic. But we also realized that, you know, there are a lot of musical terms that we want to use in our broadcast, but if we put them in context or just one simple phrase to explain them, um, things like the word coloratura, which means singing a lot of really fast notes. And if we sort of just put that in context in a way, and so it's something that brews in our mind all the time when we're putting our broadcast together of, who are we talking to? Are mm-hmm. we hitting our six and a half or seven? We, we decided we were like a six and a half or seven. Somebody who's educated and wants to know about opera and is tuning in for the first time, we want them to stick with us. Okay. So, so, so how, do you, how do you entice someone who's like a two? In this world, you know, there are people that are going to like opera and there are people that just aren't. So um, we just try to be ourselves and be genuine and warm and bring them along that way. And if they and like what they hear when the music starts, they'll stay. And if they don't, they're not going to. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do everything we can to make it as inviting in a natural way as possible. We don't do anything like 
crazy or give away free T-shirts at intermission, <laughs> something like that. But you could. There's nothing well, stopping you. We, we, have, we have big conversations of what I really think the Met needs is a T-shirt cannon at intermission, but so far it hasn't happened. That, <laughs> no that would be but at least that I'm going to go for it again. I'm going to say during the we do parks concerts all at the parks around the five boroughs uh-huh. of New York in the summer. I said, can we just do a T-shirt cannon in the summer? Because then I would, because I host those and I would get to shoot it from the I stage. And I just think that sounds like that a lot sounds of very fun. exciting. I yeah. Think, yeah, I think I think that you would possibly attract a whole new uh, a bunch of clientele who would be excited about the merchandising. You can right. have your merch tables right, right. in the background and everything yeah. like that. Well, we have a shop next door, right there next to our box office, but it's 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 not the T-shirt and pencils and erasers and baseball th- cap kind I of a I, store. Yeah, sadly. I'm, I'm kind of picturing because I've seen the ones in Chicago for yeah. the CSO. It's and, probably the same. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot Pretty of high like, end stuff. Frank Lloyd Wright lamps and yeah. weird things like that. Earrings made too. of <laughs> earrings made of our Swarovski chandeliers. Yeah. bits, you know, no, things like that. It's beautiful yeah. stuff, yeah. but it's sort of like not not you know not sort of not your, a lot of what they call grandma grabbers, <laughs> things that women buy grab yeah, for their grandchildren. Yeah, not a lot yeah. of yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah, no. Well, that's really great. That's so. Let me ask you just a couple of since you know one of the assumptions we make on this podcast is that our audience may be listening to some things that are fairly new to them. If somebody mm-hmm. is new to the whole world of opera, where should they start? What should they? What do you think would get them where they want to be so that they're so that you can shift them from being the I don't know anything about it to the oh okay here's a place I can latch on. You know, it's so much easier now than it used to be because. You can pick up your phone and find all the entertainment you want 24-7, and you never have to put it down. Uh, so there are lots of you – know, go to YouTube and watch clips. Mm-hmm. Find a like, – like if suddenly you see like Renee Fleming on TV and you're captivated by her singing one aria or something, you can go on YouTube and find her watching a million things. And maybe you'll discover an opera – that she's singing something from that you want to check the whole thing out, and then it's quite easy to do that mm-hmm. places as well. Um, so it's just feeding little bits or come to an opera that's particularly exciting and in your face if you like that kind of music. When my daughter was in high school, she had this kid who was a jazz guitarist who wanted to come to the opera. He's a jazz bassist, actually. And so I had her bring him to Puccini's Turandot, which is the loudest, in-your-face, rock-and-roll <laughs> opera, and it's not long. And... Afterwards, I said, okay, Charlie, what would you think? I thought it was great, he said. And he, he really liked it, and he occasionally, you know, yeah. would come back again. So, so is he up for the ring cycle now? Does he want that's to? A, that's a pretty big leap. Although, you know, there are people that start with that and love that and don't mm-hmm. go to other things. They're just stuck in the ring, which opens this, starts this Saturday at the Metropolitan Opera. It's ah, like okay. dominating the rest of our spring season. I missed well, the final dress rehearsal of Das Rheingold today, uh, but I'll be there on Saturday. Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a massive thing that I've yeah. tried to get my head around for years mm-hmm. because it was, for me, it was usually trying to find composers who I was sort of already oriented to what they were <laughs> doing mm-hmm. and then kind of work into their right. vocal music kind of that mm-hmm. way. So. But, you know, the, the popular hits like Bizet's Carmen or Verdi's Aida or Puccini's La Boheme, you know, not for nothing, they're the most off-perform operas around the globe year after year after year because they're really easy to get into. Mm-hmm. I mean, Carmen is so full of tunes and it's about this woman who's free and independent and, you know, and uh, La Boheme is the story of young love and the music is so beautiful <laughs> and any 20-something can kind of relate to being a starving artist type of mm-hmm. person and, and Verdi's Aida is just big and grand in Egypt, and it hits you in the face. So, uh, so was yeah. there, is there a performance that you went to at some point in your life that was just the, just the one that sticks out 
as being kind of the transcendent, spectacular moment. Gosh, that's a. Uh, I've been going for so long, yeah. <laughs> and I've produced or hosted fifteen hundred performances uh-huh. before. I, you know, after I'd been an opera lover for thirty years, I don't think I could name one. But there were there were a handful. I would say the the one the one early on when I was still my backpacking summer around Europe when I was doing my master's degree. I um, was in Munich. It was a summertime. It was the Munich Summer Festival. And they were doing Richard Strauss's opera Der Rosenkavalier. And I'd never seen it. It was long. I knew it was... I'd heard, I'd heard chunks of it, and I knew a lot of the music of it, but I'd never seen it straight through start to finish. And uh, I stood in the long line, and I got a standing room ticket, and I stood up. It's like four hours long. It just... <laughs> sailed by it just oh. sailed by and I was totally transfixed and it, it turns out that was a pretty historic performance that people still talk about mm-hmm. if you if it's one of those if you say you were at the Munich Rosenkavalier in 1978 people go oh, oh. yeah Carlos Kleiber conducting with <laughs> Jones Brigitte Fassbender Lucia Pop oh yeah that was something I said yeah and I was there <laughs> so and and I have to say that was kind of an opened a door to me to the mu- music of Richard Strauss I knew his tone poems, Don Juan, Ein Heldenleben, the famous Also Sprach Zarathustra 2001 mm-hmm. that people know. But that was like the first opera, and then I really started studying Strauss opera, and very quickly, he became my favorite opera composer, um, and that era of music at the right at the turn of the 20th century, from like 1890 to 1920, where tonality was kind of breaking apart, and there were a million different composers going a million different ways with it. That quickly mm-hmm. and still is my favorite era. So that kind of opened a door for me in lots of different ways. Yeah, the end of that era, from what I'm remembering and what I've listened to, there was also this kind of like globalization. People were being influenced by cultures that they weren't, you know, that weren't very normally, much so. Yeah. I mean, Debussy writing uh, was influenced by the Javanese gamelan yeah. that he heard at the Paris exhibition and mm-hmm. started writing all these free flowing, not metric kinds of things where harmony changed at its own rate. Kind of very more what Philip Glass is, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of a, the beginning, the beginning steps of that idea. Mm-hmm. And Bartok with his stuff that's influenced by Hungarian folk music and early Schoenberg and um, Puccini at his height and Strauss at the same time writing Electra and Salome, which are two of the most dissonant and crashy things you've ever heard. All that stuff was going on at the same time. It's pretty mad. And Franz Lehar's The Merry Widow. So go figure. Yeah. It was all happening at the same time. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a book yeah. by Roger Shattuck called The Banquet Years that talks about European art culture basically mm-hmm. at that time. And it's sort of the transition from, you know, sort of, well, it, it, actually the whole book starts from Victor Hugo's funeral and goes up through essentially the dissolution of the Dadaists and turning into the Surrealist. Uh-huh. But it's this just amazing, it's like, if I could be anywhere historically, I would want to be in those places when, the, when there was just this creative explosion going on. Paris around the turn of the 20th century. Paris and then reaching Mama to New York, uh, uh-huh. going to the, what was it, the mm-hmm. Armory Show and what was that, 1917, when Dada exploded. Mm-hmm. And just just a fascinating historical period with all these influences flooding One in. One of my favorite books is um, by David McCullough. It's called The Greater Journey. And it's the story of all the Americans who went to Paris from starting about 1820 when it started, and it, it was it was doctors and it was painters and it was sculptors and musicians, and it and it, it he kind of stops at 1900, but it's fascinating, you know, John Singer Sargent and uh, the great sculptor whose name escapes me now, 
Augustus Sand, the guy who did all the big ones in uh, the bronzes in New York City. Right. What's uh, I can't remember. Not Rodin. No, no, okay, no, no. I didn't think that's uh, yeah. Augustine. I'm going to hate myself later. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's a wonderful book, and you read that book, mm-hmm. and you go, "I want to go to Paris and be an artist yeah. too." Oh, yeah. always, I was always interested because the follow-up from that was a lot of uh, expatriate American, African Americans who couldn't take it in the U.S. anymore, oh, for sure. and then over the next fifty years, oh, for sure. found a home. Josephine in Baker, Paris. yeah, yeah, or Richard Wright, you know, mm-hmm. who who actually you know ended up James um, Baldwin, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just kind of an amazing time. Mm-hmm. Well. Thank you for talking to us. This was fascinating. Pleasure. I really appreciate Fun. it. And thank you for coming Fun. and visiting us here at uh, the University of Oklahoma. It's nice to be back in my hometown. <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you for listening. Thank you, Alani, for joining us. Thank appreciate you very it. much. And we'll talk more. We will talk more. And this has been Media and the End of the World. Thank you for listening. Thank you.